and welcome to an extra conversation in our series as Jenny Thomas talks about child bereavement. And following episode six, where we discussed the death of a child, we have Nikki joining us, who is kindly going to talk about her experience of the death of her child, seven-year-old Naomi. Naomi had a rare degenerative and life-limiting syndrome, which also had a severe effect on her growth, known as cocaine syndrome. Now, this episode just features a bit of me as we hear more from Nikki and her experience of the life and death of Naomi, and also her work with Jenny as a fellow professional. Now, Nikki's worked in the field of child bereavement for many years, sharing a similar passion with Jenny. And following the death of Naomi, Nikki set up the charity Slow in 2007 with another bereaved parent. Slow standing for Surviving the Loss of Your World. It's a small London-based group for bereaved parents. Both Jenny and Nikki work together on providing residential weekends as part of their bereavement support work. So, Jenny, over to you and Nikki. Thank you so much for joining us. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for asking me. Would you mind starting with just explaining a bit about your little Naomi that died and the effect that she had and the gift she gave to you that sort of led you into this work? Because unlike myself, I, I haven't experienced the loss of a child. I feel that's something that you bring that's very important in what we do. Um, it's always a pleasure to talk about Naomi Grace. She was our first child born and she was born with a very rare life limiting condition a syndrome called cocaine syndrome Um, we didn't know we had no idea that she was born with this going to be born with this condition so it was a, a complete surprise and a shock when she was born to see that she was a different baby to the baby we were expecting um but as we got used to her condition we learned to live with all the the implications of her condition Um, and this meant that our worlds were completely changed to the world that we thought we were going to live in. So the way that I often um, remember that world is that our world shrunk, our world became smaller and scaled down to the world we thought that we were going to be in. But this also meant that because of Naomi's care needs, she was tube-fed, She wasn't able to get around, so we carried her everywhere. She was very, very tiny. Because of that, our lives became quite home-based, although we did manage to get camping to Spain and France and do all sorts of things. But we lived very much in the moment because living with a child who you don't actually know how long you've got with her um, means that time becomes very precious. So we lived very vividly. So the kind of flip side of living with all this uncertainty and not knowing meant that we also lived very much moment to moment, day by day. And we really um, learned from her, actually, how to live with with sort of joyfulness for each moment, to know that each moment was precious, um, and living very vividly. Um, can, I, can I just ask you, when do you remember when you first knew that there was there might be something wrong? When Amy was actually born, um, I mean, I'd been doing all the usual um, appointments in maternity clinics and pregnancy clinics and seen lots of pictures of uh, sort of bouncing chubby babies. Because she was your first, wasn't she? Was she was my first baby, yes. So mm. I was very excited about being a mum for the first time. Um, so when she was actually born, she was very, very tiny. She came in at five, just over five pounds. And my immediate feeling was that she looked different. That she looked different to the pictures that I'd seen. She was very, very tiny. Um, perfectly formed 
and she had a sort of look about her that was slightly otherworldly. And I noticed it straight away as her mum. I remember that feeling literally as soon as she was born, but didn't say anything about that and sort of life took over and lots of people turned up at the ward and lots of people brought congratulations and flowers and gifts. And I remember really listening out hard for what people said. Um, So people saying, she's so tiny, she looks just like a pixie, she's such like a little fairy, she's a little elf. And I kind of heard all this and I kind of felt really proud and thought she's absolutely exquisite and beautiful and so tiny. And I also heard somebody say, she looks like a changeling child. And I think, oh, which had this idea that she was sort of born from somewhere else or not looking the same. That's a really strong memory. But life moved on and we, you know, she had a lot of feeding difficulties, but we, we sort of got on with it and she, um, she grew very, very slowly. She stayed very small. Do you remember when there, when there was any feeling that things might not be all right, that she might die? Or did you have, a, did you have any sense of that? Around, um, we had a wonderful first six weeks of joyfulness going home and looking after her. And we, around six weeks old, she was taken for her six-week test and she failed some of the tests and she failed the hearing test and various few little bits and pieces. And she wasn't growing. She sort of fallen right off the ninth percentile in the red book, which was all news to me. I knew nothing about this red book. And as the months went on, I noticed that people were getting more and more concerned and I was finding it harder and harder to feed her and she wasn't growing at all. This is a a condition where growth is really affected. So children with this condition stay very, very tiny. So I I began to attend lots of appointments with her all over London every single day, MRI scans and uh, other scans and traveling in between different hospitals. And I started to feel very scared that something was much more wrong than simply not being able to hear Um, and I was picking up lots of signals from people that they weren't completely sure what was wrong. And then one day um, I was waiting for her to have an appointment and I read her confidential notes, as I think any mum would, waiting in a waiting room. I was having her notes. She was in an MRI scanner. I was really scared for her. Um, And I read that the doctors thought she had this incredibly rare syndrome, which was life very life-limiting, and that she might not live um, anything beyond two to you know six years old or even younger than that um and I was absolutely filled with terror and fear and I went straight out to look it up in the medical dictionaries and I saw lots of pictures of children who looked just like her even though she was only at that point eight weeks old so I was gripped started to get really gripped by fear and I really realized when I looked at the dictionaries that her life was going to be very very short and that she was going to have all sorts of difficulties um, which would end in her death. And it was uh, a moment I shall never forget because I I think I really thought, I really felt that grief for me started there and the love I had for her, which was so overwhelming, sort of turned into real fear and grief. And looking back now, um, I, 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 there's a book called A Grief Observed by C.S. Lewis, which he actually wrote about his wife who died. But there's a sentence in that book which says, no one ever told me that grief feels so much like fear. And I think in that moment, I was terrified that she was going to die. How was I going to look after? How was she going to die? How long had we got? So that's really... And then it was finally confirmed by diagnosis another four or five months later. Um, 
So that whole period for me, I got more and more frightened and stopped going to baby groups and stopped going to breastfeeding groups. And I sort of slipped away from the world of being a new mum with a new baby and started to sort of be, you know, very upset about what the world was going to hold for her and for us. Meanwhile, I must say that my husband, Tim, was just fantastic during that period because he, he just had this, he was able to just love her, hold her, look after her and just take things moment by moment at that point when I was really struggling with being a new mum and my body was feeling exhausted and drained and I wasn't able to feed my baby which is the most important thing to do Mm -hmm. so we really I mean he really held things together at that point for me too. Nick I've heard you talk about Naomi in such a loving way on a number of occasions and um, I always feel moved by it and I think it's something where you feel like she gave you gifts that were very very important. What would you say was one of the greatest things that you got from that experience of having a very, a very different experience of motherhood? We talked about this a lot at home and other people said the same thing. She touched people really deeply. And one of the things that she brought, she really changed my life because she taught me that love, but being even if you can't speak verbally and you can't communicate with words, that you can communicate incredibly deeply through your presence and your spirit. She was an exquisite child in every way. She was very happy, despite all the things she had to put up with. She just would tug on your sleeve or smile at a stranger. When we were out, people would just come up and just want to connect with her. She was unbelievably able to connect with other people. So I kind of learned that, you know, I've always been a bit into, oh, I must get my exams and get onto a career. She never had any of that. You know, she, she, you, and I learned you don't need those GCSEs and jobs and careers to make an impact in the world. Her impact was colossal, huge. Um, and it's, it's really taught me that it's the quality of life and the depth of life and the fullness of living in the moment that's the most important thing rather than the length and what we achieve in the standards that we set ourselves and what we all strive for. So I'd say she completely changed my life, actually. It's that that I now feel I've taken in from her. It's a really funny paradox that she's this little child who can't, who's not going to live for very long, who seems to have so many issues and difficulties who actually taught me how to live my life going forward and to do the work that I now do. And, and how long did you have her for? What, what, what length of time did she live? She, she actually died aged seven and a half, which was much longer than we thought. So we had extra time with her. And that included a wonderful, wonderful two years um, with her brother. So I had a, we had another little child. Um, when Naomi was five, we had a little boy called Hamish born. And for just two years, we all had two years together before she died. We had the two years which were absolutely wonderful, joyful. Hamish and her got on brilliantly, played together. Um, and he knew that he had a sister. She knew she had a brother and it was the happiest time. Of, and he, he uh, one of the things I've learned so much about your relationship with Hamish through how you spoke to him so openly and honestly. Can you Can you expand on that? Because I think people listening will wonder... How did you manage to talk to a little boy about a sister that had lots of problems mm. and might not live very long? Did you talk about death to him at all? Um, we, as we were living with Naomi, we took lots of trips to Helen House Hospice for Children in Oxford, who 
were absolutely fantastic at coming alongside us and that also guided us very much so in how we could parent Naomi, parent Hamish and do our own thing. They really allowed us to have the confidence to do our own thing. So Hamish was just involved in absolutely everything and he he was reg- you know he knew all about the tube feeding and what was needed to be put into Naomi's feeds and when she would get sick and he would come with us on all the appointments and play. He was only tiny and he I think it's more about and when Naomi was actually dying Hamish and we were encouraged by the hospice to this he was allowed to kind of come in and out of the room running in and out having a little look at Naomi asking is she, is she going to die soon so actually it sounds odd it sort of it really helped us as parents like he helped us to answer those questions because he was so open and curious he hadn't got any worries about asking those things when Naomi actually died um Again, he was on this little red tricycle and pedaled into the special room where Naomi was lying on a, on a cool bed in the hospice, had a little look and wanted to have a little touch and then wanted to run away. So he was experiencing all the emotions that probably we were feeling, but he was completely able to Natural, express them naturally. Yes, yes. And the other thing I really do remember is that he was very curious after Naomi's um, cremation about her remains and what it was and what was inside the little box that came back from mm. the funeral mm. directors. And again, he asked us what happened to Naomi. We were able just to tell him exactly what happened. And we didn't, because of his confidence, we didn't feel we needed to shy away from that. And in the end, he actually had his own little um, pot of Naomi's ashes in a Play-Doh pot, which he wanted for himself. And when we'd go away on holiday and spread some of Naomi's ashes in Cornwall or wherever we'd been with her, he would take his own little pot and he'd call it Naomi Magic Dust and he'd put a few down um, wherever he wanted. And he even took them to show and tell at school, which did cause a few <laughs> few issues with people worrying, <laughs> all the adults worrying whether that was okay. But all his schoolmates crowded around him. And, what a learning yeah, they got. You know. How lovely, because it's so natural to be like that with a yeah. child. And so many people ask me, how do you talk about a cremation? How do you... So did you actually say, what did you say it was? We said that he was sort of... I mean, it was really, this sounds as if I had it all worked out. I didn't. This was very much learning as we go along. It wasn't instantly knowing because, you know. But we, we said that he, oh, sorry, we said that Naomi was, um, he'd been to the funeral, he'd seen her coffin. Um, and we said that we'd gone to a special place called a crematorium where we'd just be on our own. We actually chose just to be with Tim, me and Hamish at that point. The, we'd had the funeral and that she'd be going into a special room that was very, very, very hot and would that her body inside the box would be, I don't think we actually did use the word burned, I think it would be changed by the very hot heat, changed into ashes, and we called them dust, so that she would be able to be scattered and mixed in with the, in the soil. That's lovely, yeah. that's, that's so helpful, because it happens all the time in life, doesn't it, that cremation is not talked about because people are so worried about, what to say, especially to children. And I've just, think that's right. And I've just remembered also that we did say um, that she would not be feeling anything. We had to make, you know, because oh, yes. it sounded like it was a bit frightening. But actually, he wasn't frightened at all, Hamish, because he was super curious. Um, but we said that, you know, because she died, her body wouldn't be feeling anything. She, you know, she wouldn't feel any pain or hurt from the... That her body wouldn't work anymore. Yes, exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, perhaps... Talk a bit about how you feel 
your experience of having Naomi has affected the work that you do. Do you feel that it gives you a special um, affinity with the people that come to your groups? Um, is that why you have a sort of passion for it? Or what, what do you think it is? Do you feel like you're still reliving her life by being in groups? Or is there something else? Um... I, I I don't feel I'm reliving her life. I feel that I'm living with what she gave me, which mm. is slightly different. I've sort mm. of so I think that living with a child like Naomi means that every expectation we'd had of life was different. I think having every feeling and emotion that was possible as a human being to have living with Naomi, the grief, the joy, the love, the fear, the terror, the all the huge human emotions. Um, drew me to want to work with people who had lost the child because when we lost Naomi, we had all of that again. So we were again living in another world where you're really in touch with what it means to be a human being. And mm. um, it really mm. draws me to working with people where life has not turned out how they thought it would. Yes. I've got a word I love that I talk to you about, which is being congruent, which means for me that my inside and my outside match. So when I'm talking, I feel like I'm being really real. And in groups with Nikki, we are very real. It's a totally congruent environment. We're fortunate, actually, we have um, someone who supports the residential work that we do together, which is um, a charity called Teddy's Wish. And Jen and Chris Reed raised the funds for that because they experienced the loss of a little boy um, at three months old, a sudden infant death. And it's great that we know that we've got a certain place we can go to. We book the place a year in advance. We love where we work and we're funded, which is great. It's a, it's a nice feeling not to feel like it all has to be for charity because we do work in this field, although we work very much at a charitable rate. And Nick, you found another area that I listen to, and I feel quite envious because you enjoy it so much, which is some training that you do around mindfulness. Do you, do you just explain a bit about that? Mm, yes. Um, I think it's all come about because living with Naomi meant that I had to live very much moment to moment. And as I said earlier, that the living in the moment and in the present with Naomi, she lived beautifully in the moment, meant that things were quite vivid and um, you appreciate the small things in life and you get very kind of in touch with moment to moment living and I became very interested in in this after she died I found it incredibly helpful to stay as present as I could with what I felt to tune into how the, my body was feeling because grief did does really affect your body physically affects you mentally affects your emotions everything about you and I found it really helpful to uh, to sit with my with my breathing and notice how that was um, and my body and I noticed um, and eventually I went on to train as a mindfulness teacher there's a lot of mindfulness around now um, where people think it's going to be a, fix all their problems and be a you know panacea for everything that's going on and I'm I'm not into that really I'm just about it's, a, it's an extended version of what we do in the rest of the weekend it's a way of coming together sitting together with what's going on now so in a way being it's, in the here and it's now being in the here and now um yes it's you know hugely affected with all sorts of mental health conditions and it's just helpful for all of us i think i try to you know we all have we're all prone to feeling low we're all prone grief is going to affect all of us so i see it as a very kind of really beneficial way 
to um to to learn the skills to be in the world and to to learn how to respond to what's going on rather than to tighten up and react and push things away we're very much about being with what is and that's where Jenny is so fantastic and what we share both of us have done a fair bit of training over many years for me and you too on the things that we're interested in around counselling, counselling skills, listening, um, and certainly you've done the mindfulness training. However, what we both bring is much more ourselves. We, we bring, and we both work in a very human way, don't we? That We bring our humanity. And that's why I enjoy working with you so much. It's not so much about what we've trained in and how skilled we are. It's more about we're just human beings that enjoy working together in this field. Well, Jenny, a real insight from Nikki there to her life with and after Naomi. Um, thank you so much to both of you for allowing us to hear that conversation. Um, she's someone you work with, but also seems to be someone you've learned from as well. Oh, yes, um, she certainly is. I've been very, it's been very good to work with a parent who's lost a child you can't get what I've learned from Nikki from textbooks. And it continues to be something that I'm learning about. From parents generally, I've heard that they often don't feel that they did enough for their child when their child died in a family with the surviving children. And that those children, perhaps later on in life, are showing some behaviors that concern the parents and they worry that they, it was their fault that they didn't do what they should have done when the death happened. Certainly in my experience, that's not what goes on. I think what happens is that children's grief changes with each of their de developmental stages. So when you get a child that was little, that experienced the loss of someone important in their life, they would behave in a very different way to they, they might when they were teenagers. I remember one teenage girl um, being terribly upset because although her mum had died when she was little, the thing she really, really wanted a mum for was to help her to buy her first party dress for a big party at school, a ball, I think it is. They go to these balls now. And it was so sad listening to how all her friends had mums that took them shopping. Mm. And it was, she said, it's like I've only just realised that. But it wasn't that she wasn't managed really helpfully when she was little. I expect she was. But, you know, it changes when you grow up and um, that's why grief comes with you mm. and I've watched uh, also I've seen how anxious parents are when they've had a child die how anxious they are with the surviving children that those anxieties are always there you know you you don't forget that a child can die when it's happened to you and for me I watched sad things on the news but I'm not normally expecting it could happen to me or my children or my family but I've noticed with bereaved parents that can feel very different it can feel like oh that could be that could be us next it chimes a little more yes definitely and also you they, they talk about becoming you know a statistic and they've been one once, mm. so why wouldn't they be one again? And I, it's that sort of thing that I think is really important to, to remember. Mm. In the work that you've done, obviously, I mean, you sort of mentioned there when parents might feel that they've, that they've might have done something wrong in helping the child that's living 
to grieve properly. Um, I guess there are moments when people may feel certain processes of helping someone to grieve are, are right or a wrong or the way that someone's grieving is right or that, that someone is, is not doing it right. Do people have different views? Do rifts get created between people around grief? Yes, rifts do get created. But before I go on to that, I just want to say there isn't really a way to grieve properly. You know, people do as they must. I've said this before on another podcast, I know, but it's important not to judge that what somebody's doing might be not properly or not right. We do what we must and All of us have had our lives before the loss. So everything that's happened in your life will influence how you manage manage the loss. Mm. But what um, I am minded to talk about is you're talking about rifts. And very often in families, rifts occur when there's been a loss, not just the loss of a child or a parent. But whenever there's grief around, it's very likely that people fall out. And one of the things I've learned over years of hearing about how upset somebody is about someone not doing something they hoped they would or wished they had um, is to help folk who are bereaved and those who are close to them to remember how very hard it is to stop that rift right early on. So it's a bit like you put a brick down when somebody says something that was thoughtless to you and you're the bereaved person and you think, how could they have said that? And a sort of brick goes down. And then the person that said it very often feels they wish they hadn't and another brick goes, they then feel awkward and embarrassed and another brick goes down. And then the person who's bereaved notices that they're not getting, they're not being in touch like they were and another. And before you know where you are, you've got a great big brick wall and you, the bereaved person, can't get over it and the person who's caused you the upset can't reach back to you and somebody has to do something about that otherwise whole families fall out Mm. and it the sooner you do it the the better so the sooner you say something like you know I realized I should have remembered what today was I can't believe I was so chirpy and I know it's your was your due date or I know it's the anniversary of your little one's death or your wife's death or whatever it is Mm. if you've made something that was a bit of a mess up just say I am so sorry most people will be very very relieved and I've never known anyone who has actually apologized to then be rebuffed Mm. I know in my job I've made mistakes where I've said something to someone that I wished I hadn't you know I I thought why did I say that And it's really helpful to very quickly say, uh, I'm so sorry, I I didn't mean to say that. And most people say to me, oh, it's okay, Jenny, we knew you cared. It wasn't very, wasn't very good, but we knew you cared. And that was all, that was all right. So try, if you're in a brief, um, in a bereavement situation, to just remember how sensitive it all is Mm. and to not put any bricks down if you can help it. Yeah. You probably know that, Nick. Yeah, it's certainly it's certainly an illustration that is very clear uh for people. It uh, yeah, it certainly works as as quite a good metaphor. Are there in your experience Jenny or with people that you've spoken to, are there people that, you know, these these rifts tend to occur more with between relationships in families? 
Yes, I think there are. I think there are. Um, it's more difficult with grandparents sometimes, not because grandparents are don't care. They care very deeply, and I often hear, I'll often get messages from grandparents if they know I'm seeing the family about what can they do differently, what could they do to make it better. Um, and I think the age difference, you know, 50 years ago, we didn't do any of what we do now, and so they didn't know about the way we're now managing grief, which mm. is so much better than it was. Um, and with grandparents, very often... They say something a little bit insensitive. They don't mean it, but it's mainly because they're not very comfortable with what's going on. They don't know how to be. They don't know how to um, just say, I'm so sorry, and what can I do? Or even to remember an anniversary. That seems a bit odd sometimes to grandparents. But from my perspective, most of the grandparents I hear from are deeply, deeply saddened mm. by the loss. I had one lovely gentleman that said to me, I just wish it was me because I've had my life. Why am I still alive? I'm 60 and this little soul hasn't even had a life. She was only little. And, you know, and but I doubt whether he will have done that terribly helpfully with his family mm. but it, it's easier probably to talk to me about that but you know don't underestimate how much grandparents um, need help with being involved mm. need to be included and forgiven <laughs> I sound awful probably because I am a grandparent but I, I do feel that it's something that um, needs to be understood yeah well I guess and, and sort of talking about it generationally here we are it's a podcast series talking about death and, and grieving and bereavement and and these are topics that we're understanding more and more for our mental health it's it's better to get out there and to be mm. talking about these sorts of things and hopefully the benefit of, of your life's work is is helping people who are listening now but generationally you don't have to go back as you say uh, terribly far 20 30 50 years mm -hmm. and and people wouldn't say anything mm -hmm. and these issues would be brushed under the carpet and mm -hmm. stiff up a lip you're expected to crack on and mm -hmm. so probably understanding that the change in attitude is harder for grandparents to feel of course, that of course. now is the time to say more mm. what's on your mind or in your heart is is obviously a bit more challenging perhaps and help them mm. you know i think that's what that's what the message is that i'd like to get out there is that often then you know we don't need a rift over grandparents if we can avoid it yeah um you also uh wanted to uh, i know just talk about uh someone else that you learned from the psychiatrist uh, diana riley Yes, that's right. Um, she was she supervised me at Wickham Hospital for many years, and she was an amazing lady with a great deal of knowledge. And she taught me things that I found very, very helpful to know about. She spoke about how grief could be very complicated if you were expecting a baby, if you were pregnant and you lost a child. And that was invaluable, really, that understanding of that complication and that there are griefs that are more complicated because of things like that. She also taught me that when um, a baby has died, parents very often long for another baby quite quickly and that there can be some benefit in holding them metaphorically from actually having another baby too soon. Um, she felt that the baby that died needed the time 
to be remembered. And I found that way of thinking about it really helpful when I suggested that to parents Mm. because they liked the idea that this was an important time for them with the little one that had died and that they could wait before, wait a bit longer before they dared to be pregnant again. Um, And I learned, I I did some training at the Tavistock Clinic around that and that how unhelpful it can be to fall pregnant three months after the death of a baby because the next baby is then born at exactly the same time as the baby that died. I mean, I say unhelpful. I've known people where that's happened and they've been fine, but it is more complicated because every stage of that next pregnancy is it at the sa- is the same time mm. as the last baby that died. Yeah, and then I guess you've talked as well about not being able to necessarily put off grief and and that then I guess if the grief oh, yes. hasn't happened and someone then has that baby that that there may still be grieving yet to be done well definitely one of the things again that I learned from Diana Riley was often in pregnancy we find grieving more difficult because we're protecting the little baby that we're carrying you don't want to get too upset you don't want to make um, that baby suffer in any way so you don't always allow yourself to feel the full grief and then once you're pregnant again and everything should be really joyous because the new baby has arrived it can be when the grief really comes back full full blown grief Mm. it's not necessarily postnatal depression people can think that that is what's happening Um, usually postnatal depression doesn't start until a f- quite a few weeks after the birth of a baby. Mm. I worked with Diana Riley in a postnatal depression group for about eight years where we ran groups for young women who um, were suffering and it's such a, a dreadful, dreadful thing to have. Um, I'm so pleased that more is being done today for women who have postnatal depression and it hasn't got the, the stigma that it seemed to have years ago. Well, I'd say it's certainly benefiting all of us that uh, discussing mental health is something that we're getting more and more used to. Um, Before we round off episode seven, uh, is there anything else you'd like to add? Well, I'd just like to thank Nikki and all the people that I've worked with, really. It makes me realise doing this just how many people have influenced me in the whole area of loss and bereavement and how much... I've gained from that and um, I'm so pleased that we are now much more open, much more open in talking about death and grief and how we feel. So yeah, it's very good news. Yeah, certainly is. Well, Jenny, thank you once again. And as usual, you can look in the podcast description for all of the links that are related to what we've talked about in this episode and, uh, and do check out the rest of the episodes in our series as Jenny Thomas talks about child bereavement. But for now, from me and from Jenny, it's goodbye. <laughs>